Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face, the impacts they are having on society, and what we can do to help solve them. My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, we're going to look at gender inequality and some of the ways it's affecting societies across the world. We will hear how gender bias in China is affecting women's lives and has combined with population policies to create significant demographic pressures for the country. We will look at gendered violence in Latin America and among migrant communities in the UK and how it sparked waves of activism around the world. We'll also explore progress on the gender pay gap in countries across the globe. Professor Cathy McElwain, Dr Yelio and Dr Elaida Borges, who all work in the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London, will tell us about their work on these issues and what we can do to help move us towards a more equal world. Professor Cathy McElwain of our Department of Geography has spent 25 years studying gender issues and gender inequalities with a particular focus on Latin America and also migrant women in the UK. She began by setting out why gender inequality matters. These inequalities curtail women's participation in society. This may be their economic roles in terms of work and labour markets and paid employment, but also in terms of formal and informal politics. That might be at the grassroots level. It might be in terms of government decision making and national politics. So in other words, women are across the world treated as second class citizens. A particular focus of her work has been around gender-based violence. Evidence shows that globally one in three women will experience physical and or sexual violence in their lifetime. This has prompted the World Health Organization to describe partner and sexual violence as a major public and clinical health problem that is rooted and perpetuates gender inequalities. Professor McElwain highlighted how it was only in 2000 that the UN Security Council recognised the gendered nature of armed conflict and peacebuilding, and that rape is used as a tool of war. Her work has also shown other ways in which women are affected by conflict. I did some research in Colombia and, and Guatemala, and we looked very specifically at the ways in which armed conflict and a post-conflict transition was deeply gendered. And basically that showed that even if women, for example, were not competent in an armed conflict, the effects of the armed conflict often affected them disproportionately. For example, they were the ones who ended up being internally displaced people in the case of Colombia, for example. They ended up in the refugee camp. They ended up holding the fort, so to speak. It's really important that we embed gendered violence, we acknowledge gendered violence as being more than domestic violence and more than intimate partner violence. That is key. And we need to understand the way in which all types of gendered violence are implicated in economic systems and economic inequalities, but also issues, again, really crucially when we're thinking about the part of the world where I do uh, much of my research in Latin America, in patterns of colonialism. The gendered nature of urban violence is the focus of much of her recent work, which she carried out with favela communities in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. 
in the context of, for example, a favela community like the one that we work in in Rio de Janeiro, these women are situated in very violent contexts. So the research that we've been doing is looking at, for example, the relationships between gendered urban violence and other types of violence and how they're all interconnected. So for example, the, the community, the favela where we work in is dominated by a whole range of different gangs, drug trafficking, um, militias they're called, and basically a whole range of different armed actors. They run different territories and they also then battle with the police who have frequent what, what are called incursions into the favela and they come in with tanks and they come in with guns and they shoot people. Now, they aim to shoot young, usually black men, but women get caught in the crossfire. Firstly, women get caught in the crossfire, but also they then have to deal with what happens when their partner gets killed, their husband gets killed, their son gets killed. And some Brazilian writer, feminist writers, have talked about this as a deeply traumatic experience for many women. And it can be, for example, it's been characterized as a slow death of anxiety and depression because they have to witness and deal with such high levels in this context of urban violence. Those are indirect forms of violence, but then this also plays out through direct forms of violence. Gangs also perpetrate direct forms of violence against women in the street, in terms of sexual assault, in terms of rapes. And then, for example, in the home as well, this naturalization of gender-based violence, which is deeply wrong, has an effect in communities like this. And so we really do need to be aware of those multidimensional power relations. While accurate data is hard to come by, figures suggest 16 women are killed every day in Rio de Janeiro. Such high rates have prompted changes to legislation around femicide, which is the killing of women because they are women. A total of 17 Latin American countries have now passed laws defining and punishing femicide as a specific crime. So in many ways, there is some progressive legislation in Latin American countries, for example, around femicide laws. And in the case of Brazil, for instance, there's a, a very well-known law called the Maria de Peña law, which was passed in 2006, so really quite a long time ago now, which allows women to report or encourages women to report and take action against abusers more easily. And it led to, amongst other things, the creation of women's police stations throughout Brazil. However, if we think about implementation, our research in Rio has shown that women don't tend to report to these police stations. Or if they report, they're not believed and so they don't use them. Professor McElwain also highlighted how gendered violence intersects with many other inequalities and prejudices. Different groups of women experience gendered violence in different ways. According to their gender, it may be whether they're trans, whether they're cis, their sexual orientation, their class, and especially important in Latin America is also their racial orientation. So, for example, recent work that we've been doing in Rio de Janeiro in a favela community, a very large favela community called Mare, black women are disproportionately affected by intimate partner violence, but also wider structural violence. They're more excluded, they're more likely to experience domestic abuse, 
and they have more problems in terms of accessing support to deal with it. I think we need to acknowledge the fact that trans women do face particular types of gender-based violence. So, for example, in this research project that's in, in Rio de Janeiro, literally last week we were doing some workshops with some trans women and they were drawing the types of violence that they experienced through what we call body mapping. They draw a body and they identify where the, the violence has appeared in a very embodied way. And what was really striking from these visual visuals of their bodies was the number of weapons. So they drew knives, they drew guns, they drew um, uh, wooden batons and they drew stones. And this is the abuse that they experienced because they are trans women. Professor McElwain's work has also looked at the experiences of migrant women in the UK and it revealed gendered violence was also an issue for them. We found that 82% of Brazilian migrant women had reported some form of gendered violence. But what's also really important to point out here is to recognise that this is not due to cultural differences. So the fact that, oh, well, They've come from very violent countries, so therefore they come to the UK and their culture means that they experience more violence. We need to understand that many migrants end up living in contexts of multiple exclusion and discrimination because they are migrants. So on one hand, this may lead to greater or higher levels of domestic abuse, as men get more resentful, as women go out to work. And so you have those sort of individual power dynamics. But these must be situated within these wider exclusions of, for example, what is the hostile immigration environment, which actively tries to discourage migrants from coming and settling in the UK. For example, we uncovered lots of workplace abuses against migrants by other migrants, by British people. For example, I'm thinking of someone that I interviewed relatively recently who was working as a, as a chambermaid in a hotel. And she talked about being um, sexually assaulted by one of her workmates, basically. When she tried to report it, it was more or less impossible. We've uncovered and revealed several cases in our research of women who have gone to the police and reported domestic abuse. However, because they can't speak English and or because they don't have secure immigration status, the police do not believe them. And I'm thinking of one particular case of a woman whose partner had secure immigration status and he spoke English. He managed to persuade the police that his partner was the one who'd actually perpetrated the violence and she ended up in a police cell overnight. She was released the next morning when a trans they managed to get hold of a translator. I couldn't believe almost that this could happen in the British system. And this, is, this was not an isolated incident either. Another piece of research that we did as part of a campaign called Step Up Migrant Women with the Latin American Women's Rights Service. And we worked with women from 22 different countries. So a whole range of different cultures, different contexts. And they also experienced this. The key issue, one of the key challenges that they faced was fear of reporting to the authorities because of deportation, destitution and losing their children and not being believed. She pointed out that gender-based violence is something that happens to women all around the world. That in very different ways, these experiences are universal. 
There is a spectrum of different types of gender-based violence, but the vast majority of women around the world will have experienced some form of abuse in some way. She highlighted how gender-based violence and access to reproductive rights have become a rallying point for feminist activist movements in many different countries. And one of them, a very famous one, is the Panuelo Verde, which means green scarves. And this started in Argentina, and it's ongoing, and it focuses on reproductive rights and access to legal abortion. And it was also in Argentina that a Me Too-type movement started off around the the murder of a a 14-year-old young woman, and it was called Ni Una Menos, Not One More. And I think it's really telling that this reached Latin America and was talked about in Latin America before the Me Too movement, which is much more global. And another really interesting case, which has had global attention, is a protest song and a protest movement developed by a feminist group from Chile called Las Tesis, called A Rapist in Your Path. And in 2019, it went viral. And it was about the structural inequalities that underpin gender-based violence. And it called out the state as a rapist. It called out the police as a rapist. It called out the system as a rapist. It called out patriarchy as a rapist. And what was so interesting is that it was translated into French, into English. It was performed amongst the Latin American diaspora around the world. And it was actually a really sophisticated understanding of what gender-based violence actually is, i.e. it's rooted in these really fundamental power inequalities that move much beyond domestic abuse within an individual household context. Dr. Ye Liu of the Department of International Development and the Lao China Institute here at King's researches the challenges and gender inequalities currently being faced by women in China. She's looked at how the country's highly controversial one-child policy, brought in in 1979, affected not just the number of babies being born, but also their gender. This policy restricted urban couples to a single child, and two for rural families if they already had a girl, and was later changed to two children in 2016 and then to three this year. Within three years of the one-child policy being introduced, there were 108 male births for every 100 females, rising to a peak of 121 males to 100 females in 2004. Even though it plateaued and then declined, in 2019 it was still 112 males for every 100 females born, which is above the world average. Dr Liu explained what lies behind this. China is still a very patriarchal society, and this thousand-year patriarchal norms preferring sons to daughters, and sons traditionally have much higher social status than daughters in individual families. And this patriarchal culture codes still exist in contemporary society. She has carried out research among women around a traditional saying in China that a woman without talent is a woman of virtue. By contrast, the equivalent saying for males is that a man with virtue is a man of talent. She said this shows how gendered boundaries are marked and how female subordination is naturalised to maintain the patriarchal order. She highlighted how failing to consider and address women's needs and their role in society, especially in the workplace, is creating ongoing demographic challenges for China. 
there has been persistent workplace discrimination against the women. So workplace discrimination plus misogynist culture, which put women off from having more children. So in my research, I talked to 82 women born in the 1980s. They shared with me a lot of stories about workplace misogynist culture and practices, particularly targeting women over childbearing and a childrearing age. So first, just give you an example. There is a discriminatory practice called pregnancy cue. So women, when they wanted to have children, they have to discuss their fertility plan with their line managers, and the line manager had to have approval before these women can actually plan to get pregnant. Some women also shared their stories of being discriminated through the discourse called diminished capabilities. So women. When they were pregnant, they were considered to have a baby brain, have pregnant women brain. They have their projects taken away from them, or when they return from maternity leave, they had to start from ground zero. So these workplace practices, misogynist culture, prevent women from committing to having more children. So the motherhood penalty started when they were pregnant. She said a lack of affordable childcare. Puts many women in a difficult position if trying to also work. So in China, the public spending on childcare has been scandalously low, around 0.4 percent of GDP, and the childcare provision between zero to age three practically non-existent. So Chinese urban families, Chinese women in particular, still rely on their parents to plug the gap over the childcare. So they rely on their elderly parents to help them. She suggested the lack of women in leadership positions is relevant to some of these misogynistic behaviors. The Chinese Communist Party has a massive blind spot on women, and this is particularly evident in the loopholes in the policy making. Women who are grossly underrepresented in the party leadership. Women hold only eight percent of leadership position at a central provincial level. And when we look at the younger cohorts of the party leaders, women only represented 11 percent. The Global Institute for Women's Leadership, based here at King's, uses research, practice, and advocacy to break down the barriers to women becoming leaders, while challenging ideas of what leadership looks like. It has recently published a new report on the gender pay gap, and I began by asking one of its authors, Dr. Elaida Borges, why this and other gender inequalities in the workplace matter. Paying women less than men has far-reaching implications for society by contributing not only to the gender pay gap, but also resulting in women's lower pension contributions and their higher incidence of relative poverty in later life. Despite progress in improving women's education and labor market integration, economic gender gaps have been much slower to close. With the World Economic Forum estimating that it will take over. 250 years for the world to reach economic parity between men and women. Gender inequality in the workplace is not only an ethical and social problem, but it also hinders economic development. The institute's recent report, funded by the UN Foundation, explored gender pay gap reporting in Australia, France, South Africa, Spain, Sweden, and the UK, using more than 80 interviews looking at progress since 2020 in each country. Here's Dr. Borges on what it revealed. 
The report highlighted that the gender pay gap reporting itself is an important tool which sheds light on pay disparities. However, countries' approaches vary markedly based on levels of transparency, accountability mechanisms, as well as the question of which employers are required to report. While the UK, for example, requires companies with 250 plus employees to report, in France and South Africa, it is those with 50 or more employees that are required to report. In Sweden, all employers are encouraged to report with the requirement applying to those with 10 or more uh, employees. We found, for instance, that Spain and France have in recent years centered their efforts on actions to address pay gaps, requiring employers to take steps to eliminate pay gaps. Employers that fail to address identified gender pay inequalities within three years in France can actually face heavy penalties of up to 1% of the payroll. In Spain, fines can reach up to 187,000 euros, in addition to companies being prevented from competing for public sector contracts. South Africa has a unique approach to gender pay gap reporting. Given the recent violent and racialized history of the nation, intersectionality is at the center of efforts to tackle inequality, including pay disparities. Instead of focusing exclusively on gaps based on gender, Ethnicity is also taken into consideration. This was often highlighted in interviews as crucial as white women in South Africa tend to have higher salaries than black men, leaving historically marginalized black women at the bottom of the pay scale. The report concluded that in the UK and Australia, legislation lacks strength as it only focuses on monitoring but does not mandate employers to take steps to address the issue. Although countries like the UK and Australia have excellent frameworks for transparency, we found that although these provide a wealth of data and shows accountability, effectively they were found to have no teeth as the focus is on monitoring but not actually fixing the problem as employers face no consequences for failing to tackle the gender pay gaps they actually report. In the different countries and cultures researched by our academics, we've heard how women are experiencing challenges caused by gender inequalities, gender-based violence, misogyny, patriarchal power structures and unfair disparities in the workplace. In all cases, this is having far-reaching consequences for society. But what can we do about it? How can we change the world so people, regardless of their gender, have equal opportunities? Dr. Borges said that when it comes to addressing the gender pay gap, their report shows that actions, not just reporting, is crucial. Employers with gender pay gaps must be compelled to produce action plans in collaboration with employees and employee representatives. In our study, we found that employers actually should have clear goals and timelines spelling out how they intend to improve hiring practices, progression, promotion, policies around the family, as well as flexible working to address pay disparities. She also suggested that focusing on just large companies, as happens in some countries, is not the right approach either. Gender inequality at work is not something that only happens in large multinational corporations. Therefore, limiting policies, trying to address it to certain groups of employers, is not sending the right message. 
We recommend that pay-up audits and clear equality statements should be inbuilt into the accounting and human resources processes of all employers with obligations for reporting and accountability applying to employers with a minimum of 50 employees, as it is the case in France, in Spain, as well as in South Africa. The government also has a key role to play. Gender pay gap reporting is one tool for tackling one aspect of a greater issue. Getting employers on board should help tackle national gender pay gaps through reducing their own gaps, raising awareness and initiating social shifts. However, government action is also required to support and push for change at a much wider level. Primary focus should be on improving parental leave, the under-evaluation of women's work, and occupational segregation at a much broader level, as well as actions such as increasing pay transparency and the minimum wage. And she highlighted the importance of considering other inequalities. Groups such as minority women and members of the LGBTQ plus community are intersectionally marginalised thus facing greater obstacles. We recommend that government and employers consider including intersectional data in their report and action plans to attain a clear and more nuanced approach to tackling pay disparities. Gender pay gap reporting is one of the tools for tackling one aspect of a greater issue. She explained how disparities in pay and the lack of women in leadership positions is something that the whole of society needs to address. Globally, women earn on average 16% less than men. In the UK more specifically, it is now more than 50 years since the Equal Pay Act came into force, but there is still a significant inequality between men and women's pay. The World Economic Forum found that few women CEOs have been appointed since the start of the COVID-19 crisis as companies defaulted to hiring male CEOs. Women, therefore, only make up to 5% of chief executives globally. While Ireland has the highest percentage at 15%, Brazil, for example, does not have a single female chief executive. To achieve gender equality, we need to continue to inspire young women and girls so that they can compete with the best in the world for the jobs at the top and see that their hard work actually pays off. At the same time, if men are the majority in the leadership positions of companies, it will require the active engagement to reverse the persistent inequality of opportunities experienced by women. It is very important that we as a society see gender equality as benefiting us all because parity is not just good for women, it is good for society. Professor McElwain said if we are to tackle gendered injustice and violence, we need to see wide changes across society. She wants to see more funding for organisations supporting those who've experienced gender-based violence. Her work has revealed how such organisations are currently filling the gaps left by the authorities, such as providing legal assistance, counselling, training opportunities to give women greater economic independence, and also running programmes that help women recognise if they've been victims of coercion or violence. In the UK, the Latin American Women's Rights Service and the Step Up to Migrant Women campaign have come together to lobby for change around domestic abuse legislation. And women in Brazil's favelas have been the backbone of their communities during the COVID-19 pandemic and have provided ongoing support to women on other issues. They've distributed food basket, they've cooked food and distributed it, they've mobilised around um, the vaccine. 
And as a result of that, they have developed these emotional communities of, of care, but also developed politically as well in terms of creating an activist network around access to resources for women who have experienced gender-based violence, but also more broadly, women who experience everyday endemic urban violence in these contexts. Professor McElwain has been using arts-based methods to help bring the issue of gender-based violence out into the open to ensure it is not seen as a taboo. She called for further reforms to legislation to address inequalities, including in the workplace, and greater use of international conventions aimed at eliminating violence against women and girls. She was also clear that every member of society needs to play a part. Gender-based violence is based on deep-seated, misogynistic, patriarchal power inequalities. And unless we change the structural power relations in societies everywhere, then we will not be able to address or prevent gender-based violence. There is no point in working just with women and girls. We need to work with men and boys. We need to work on dealing with the symptoms and the effects of gender-based violence and also work on actually preventing it in terms of thinking about the causes. Dr Liu has set out recommendations for the Chinese Communist Party to address the current issues. I think a visionary and well-coordinated policy would assist the Chinese Communist Party transforming the current dated and sexist mindset of policymaking. First, most important and most necessary step would be to promote meaningful power sharing and coalition with women and put women into leadership positions, particularly in the key areas of economic planning, finance, education, health, and welfare. Second, the government should also make childcare much more affordable by expanding the public care infrastructure and also building care economy. So policies could be used to incentivize local governments to commit to financing and building new public care providers. It is also equally important for the government to take an initiative in professionalizing the care sector. And this can be achieved relatively cost-effectively through building on existing strong teacher training system and providing subsidized training for early childhood carers. And this public investment would have a massive public and private returns. They would create new employment opportunities in the care economy and raise female employment rates more generally, and thus enhancing increasing tax revenues considerably. They would also boost the confidence of the parents, and particularly women, and helping mothers continue to work. Third, if the government wants women to have it all, to have both career and family, there is urgent need to root out the workplace discriminations against women of child-rearing, child-bearing age. This can be done through introducing comprehensive gender equality legislation to prevent workplace discrimination, strengthening maternity leave and pay entitlements. And there is also a huge public appetite for such effective action through legislation to protect women's rights. She also called for the retirement age to be reviewed to help maintain the working population. And she said there are other things that could be done to make society more gender progressive. And I think there should be a collective action on gender equality and for a better future for women in China. First, I think it's very important for the government to take a 
a step forward to make the society much more gender progressive and gender inclusive. There has been some really positive sign. So the anti-domestic violence legislation was introduced in uh, 2016. It was the first legal protection for women experiencing domestic violence. And we also need a government to do more for women by providing legal protection for equal opportunities and for maternity pay, maternity entitlements. Second, we have seen courageous young people to push forward rights movement. So we have seen the Me Too movement, um, which brought sexual harassment into spotlight. And young people have very creative ways to seek justice through social media and mobilizing attention and voices across China. She pointed out that women typically control household spending, which amounted to 5.6 trillion US dollars in 2019, and so play a key role in China's workforce and economy, something that matters to many countries around the world. All eyes on China, particularly on China's economic growth. But we also need to see women, Chinese women, are pulling a mighty weight on China's economy. Each of our academics has shared ideas that they think could have a transformative effect on current gender inequalities in different countries around the world. With this in mind, I asked them how they felt about the future. Dr Borges felt optimistic, but said the pandemic has brought new challenges. I'm very hopeful that we will see greater equality and that we are uh, working towards a more fair and um, equal society. However, we have to all recognize that the ongoing pandemic has presented uh, new challenges. According to the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the ongoing pandemic and economic shock is expected to be more severe than the 2008 financial crisis. And as such, years of progress for women have actually been reversed. Globally, structural inequalities have meant that the poorest and most vulnerable have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and associated economic restrictions. And in most cases, women are overrepresented in these categories. Furthermore, pre-existing gendered segregation in the labor force has amplified the crisis asymmetrically between men and women. If left unaddressed, the disproportionate impact of the pandemic will result in further gender-based distortion in economic and labor force outcomes. Therefore, it is crucial that we prioritize a gender-responsive recovery from the pandemic by improving economic inclusion through equal pay, better job protection, equal distribution of care work, the expansion of social protection for caregivers and informal unpaid caregivers at home, providing targeted credit and investments in the care economy. And we must also continue to push for the normalization of flexible work options. Crucially, it is important that women participate in the strategic decision-making in the response to COVID-19. The Global Institute for Women's Leadership is working on a project that seeks to inform the development of gender-sensitive social policy approaches in the COVID-19 era. It is important that we continue to reflect and discuss what a pandemic recovery looks like when it's considered gender and puts women at the centre of it. Dr Liu shared how education will be vital to help create a more equal world. It's very important for us to educate younger generations about gender equality and we need to make concerted effort to combat gender stereotypes from early years education 
throughout schooling and university experiences. She also thought the growth of the female-targeted or so-called she economy could help. We could also support a female talent, female artists, writers. Recently, Chinese female-themed movies had become huge box office hit. The movies such as Sister and Hi Mom were highest grossing films in China. Stand-up comedians also rejuvenated traditionally male-dominated stand-up industry and brought this traditional industry into mainstream spotlight. It's important for us to read female writers, to watch movies by female producers and artists, and to have their voice heard, to have their stories told. Professor McElwain highlighted the public response to the recent deaths of four women in the UK, Sarah Everard, Bieber Henry, Nicole Smallman and Sabina Nessa. She said it shows that people are now increasingly inspired to speak out and demand change. I think we have seen a sea change in terms of women and are fed up. And this also gives me hope in terms of women putting pressure on the state and on the police service and on the government to start taking gender-based violence really, really seriously. I've been working in this field for more than 25 years, and I have seen change. I've seen change at the grassroots. I've seen change in national government legislative changes. But actually, really interestingly, as a researcher, but as a researcher who teaches in a classroom, I've also seen changes in terms of how people are interested in young women and young men in gender issues. And I feel very hopeful in terms of engagements that I have with students now. They know so much more now than they did 25 years ago about gender issues, about gender-based violence. I learn from my students now about cutting-edge issues that I might have just overlooked and I haven't seen. So I do feel very hopeful. And I also feel hopeful that there is feminist activism throughout the world, both in Latin America and in the UK, And feminist activism, not just amongst women, but also amongst male allies, men who also identify as feminists. And there are so many innovative ways and interesting ways in which grassroots organizations and not just grassroots, you know, larger organizations are working on projects, on policies, on initiatives to address gender-based violence. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series. If you're interested in hearing more about the issue of violence against women in Latin America, then take a listen to a new three-part podcast series, Women Resisting Violence, launched last week by Professor McElwain, Professor Yelka Burston from King's and a team at the Latin America Bureau.